Welcome to The Sustainable Future. I'm your host, Annie. In this podcast, we explore issues related to sustainability through an interdisciplinary lens, including food, health, policy, technology, and design. Each episode, we investigate and discuss the latest topics in this space through the mindsets of scientists, entrepreneurs, policymakers, nonprofit leaders, and many others. Join us as we dig deeper into these issues and explore how we can take action to the future of our environment. Today, I am so excited to welcome Dr. Liz Carlisle to the Sustainable Future podcast. At UC Santa Barbara, her work focuses on creating a more sustainable and just food system. Hi, Dr. Carlisle. Hello, great to be here. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Really my pleasure. Yeah, I love having these conversations about sustainability. Awesome. So why don't we start off with, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe that includes where you grew up, your educational journey, and how you got interested in your, what you're interested in. Yeah, so I was born and raised in Missoula, Montana. Um, I'm not indigenous to Montana. My family had a a settler colonist experience in the United States, went through homesteading. And one of the most influential people in my life was my grandmother who um, homesteaded in Western Nebraska with her family. And um, the family lost the farm in the Dust Bowl, which was an ecological and social tragedy in the United States in the late 20s and early 30s. Um, that really happened because, uh, you know, people who homesteaded these indigenous lands, um, you know, after violent process uh, of colonization in North America, the Europeans who followed, um, you know, who were kind of led with false promises to believe this would be like, you know, lands that their families had farmed in Europe, they didn't farm those lands properly. They overplowed that land and didn't take good care of the soil. Um, and so my grandmother experienced this. She, she grew up in this beautiful place that she loved and she had all these great memories of a childhood on land, which was compelling to me. I wanted that, you know, but then she had this tragedy that unfolded and um, she really expressed to me that as a society, we needed to understand how to take better care of land and we needed to understand how to raise our food in ways that were respectful of land and of each other, you know, as she started to herself understand the events that had preceded her being there, you know, that in a sense she didn't really belong and that it had been a violent process for her family to be there in the first place. So that inspired me to talk to other people on land. Um, You know, I wanted to hear other farmers' stories of what their rural experiences were, um, both because I loved the beauty of it, that connection, and because I wanted to understand what was wrong, you know, and what needed to be fixed in order for those connections to be sustained and, and in a good way and a respectful way for, for all people. Um, and so I actually majored in folklore and mythology as an undergraduate, um, really passionate about narrative and storytelling and music, um, and became a singer-songwriter um, kind of late in my undergraduate career. And, and that's what I did coming out of college um, and got involved in the the folk scene and then the country scene um, and was traveling a lot in um, rural parts of the country and uh, visiting a lot with uh, people who had land-based livelihoods and 
and writing songs, <laughs> you know, trying to kind of encapsulate people's experience in that way and communicate something about it. But as I was traveling, I was hearing actually a lot of similar stories, um, similar stories about the barriers that people faced to a life of land stewardship, to kind of meeting the ideals that they had or traditions passed down through their families. And basically what I heard was that the economy, the agricultural economy, the way the food system was set up um, through policy um, was just not supportive of good environmental stewardship, um, among other things, that people were pushed into, you know, farming monocultures with a lot of chemicals and, uh, you know, kind of making a quick buck for the corporations that were buying their crop, you know, rather than thinking, um, you know, seven generations down the line, right, from a kind of indigenous framework. Uh, so that inspired me to think about, you know, what could we do that would actually help all of these farmers um, overcome these barriers? And at that time, actually, a farmer from my home state of Montana who had converted his farm to organic got elected to the United States Senate talking about, let's build a green economy. This is the future for our state. And that was compelling because the, the economic story in Montana since it became a state is all about extraction, mining, fossil fuel, oil and gas, refineries, and then an extractive form of agriculture. Um, and so for somebody to be talking about shifting that economy to something more regenerative and renewable, he was interested in renewable energy, homegrown, you know, we have a bunch of wind power and all that stuff. And he'd converted his own farm to organic. And he said, you know, this is really what saved my family farm is taking this approach. Um, and he won by just a squeaker, a couple hundred votes. He was running against a three-term incumbent. Uh, who was deeply supported by agribusiness and he just barely squeaked it out. It was super inspiring. Um, so I uh, left my career in music and went to work for Senator John Tester um, as a legislative correspondent for agriculture and natural resources, which meant I got to be in touch with everybody in the state who wanted to correspond with the Senate office about agricultural policy. And so I started hearing from all these other organic farmers and I realized that there was actually this whole movement that had been going on for a few decades. That people realized that industrial farming was a dead end. They were paying too much for their chemical bills. They realized their you know, soil quality was going down and they had gotten together in order to figure out you know, what crops can we rotate so that it'll provide the nutrients that we need. And, you know, the weed control we need, so we don't need to buy chemicals. And then we can sell those crops actually to people interested in ecological healthy food and make our own money rather than, you know, selling cheap to a global corporation. So the more I talked to other people and realized that this one senator I worked for was part of this big movement, people started inviting me to come see their farm, but I was in DC, so I couldn't do that in my job. And eventually that really um, lit a fire in me to go to graduate school and work with this group of farmers for my thesis project um, and actually get to go and spend some time and hear their stories and understand their systems and uh, you know, document and write about uh, what they'd done. And so I, I went to UC Berkeley. I was in the geography program. Um, and I did this project with this group of farmers in Montana that eventually became um, my first book, Lentil Underground, um, and have continued to work with and, and listen to and learn from farmers in my work. Um, and now, uh, you know, now I'm teaching at UC Santa Barbara. I was at Stanford for a few years um, after completing my degree at Berkeley. 
And more recently, I've been most interested in learning from indigenous and farmers of color, um, because I think that's, you know, it's been a really underrepresented, underappreciated um, land stewardship tradition in this country, really. Um, and I think it's primarily because 98% of land in this country is owned by white people. And so researchers like myself, where do you go? You go to the landowners, right? Um, but I think it's important to acknowledge um, the history and that um, just because those are the people who own land now, um, that's not necessarily the people who have had longstanding relationships with land or the people who are best positioned to be future stewards. Um, and, you know, both people of immigrant backgrounds and people of indigenous backgrounds come from extremely compelling traditions of stewardship um, that for the most part, people have tried to practice in this country. And what's stopped them is, is social injustice. So I think the step that sustainable agriculture as a field really needs to take is to embrace the idea that ecological stewardship of land really requires social justice in terms of who has access to stewardship of that land and the benefits of that land. So that's um, that's really what I've been focused on most recently in my, my teaching and my research. Um, and it's been incredibly rewarding to learn more about. Yeah, thank you for sharing that journey. It's so interesting to learn how uh, you your family grew up in, or your grandmother was grew up in Montana during the Dust Bowl, and then your journey as a singer-songwriter to working in Congress to now doing a lot of um, work in sustainable agriculture. That's really quite the journey. So thanks for sharing that. Um, I think, yeah, I did want to ask a few more questions about the last part where you mentioned that um, a lot of your work is trying to embrace the idea of sustainable agriculture and ecological stewardship of land. Um, and given your work in the Senate and also your research directly with farmers, um, I'm curious as we move towards a society where we are trying to work towards a more sustainable agricultural system and more sustainable food system. Um, some key things that we can work towards legislatively or politically that will allow us to really achieve that future. Yeah, I appreciate that question, Annie. I think that's a really important question to ask is kind of what are the enabling conditions that will in a sense, you know, unleash the spirit of stewardship, right? Because I think when you look at on an individual level, um, I think there's a misperception that young people don't want to farm or be engaged in land stewardship. Um, you know, I, I'm a professor, I talk to young people all day and they're like beating down the door to have a chance to be land stewards. Um, young people of many, many different backgrounds. And for many, it's, um, it's extremely profound. It feels like, um, the chance to realize their ancestors' dreams. You know, it's it's not just a personal choice or something people have a passing interest in. It's uh, central to what many people want to do with their lives and what they feel like they're here for. So there is a lot of energy around land stewardship. And I think it's those enabling conditions. And I do think federal policy is really important here. And I think it's important to acknowledge that it is federal policy that has shaped the food system we have now. Um, you know, one thing I would call attention to is 
it was uh, you know, federal policy, first of all, to wage a violent war against indigenous people on the North American continent. And then it was federal policy to then reallocate those lands through the Homestead Act. So, you know, even looking at my own family and now this land is lost, but say my grandmother hadn't lost that farm in the Dust Bowl and we still had it, that would trace back to the Homestead Act, right? So um, people got their land from the government <laughs> is what I'm trying to say, right? So that's a pretty massive um, government policy that underpins who is farming um, and who has the resources to farm and how land has been apportioned. But then since then, there's been, I'm sure, you know, many of your listeners are aware, massive federal subsidies to agriculture um, at farm support. And this came in in a big way during after the Dust Bowl, right, because farmers were broke. Um, and so it, during the New Deal, Franklin Roosevelt's administration, farm programs were initiated to support farmers so that they didn't go bankrupt because that there was an understanding it's in the interest of the country to have a domestic food supply. Um, but those programs were discriminatory. Um, actually the biggest civil rights lawsuit we've ever had was about this, um, that USDA programs all throughout the 20th century were discriminating against black farmers, were discriminating against Latinx farmers, were discriminating, um, I mean, many Asian American groups could not even legally own land in the early 20th century. So forget getting any government payments that you could only access if you were a landowner. So those are all the ways in which certain kinds of farms got capitalized starting in the early part of the 20th century and then continuing into the second half. And so that's why we have the food system we have now is not because it's more efficient or profitable or beneficial to have uh, you know, a 25,000 acre farm that only grows corn and soybeans is because those farms were systematically supported with public resources, with taxpayer dollars and other kinds of farms were systematically left out because for example, those payments that went to farmers specifically to pay them per acre to grow certain things, it was only certain commodities and you had to grow them as, as monoculture, right? So only cotton, soy, corn, wheat, rice were supported. Whereas, you know, things that were considered quote, minor crops or specialty crops, right? Which might be healthy, culturally appropriate, ecologically appropriate foods were left out of those public subsidies. And so it created this uneven playing field. So the question is, what do we do to shift that playing field? I think we have to look at all that money that's in these U.S. Department of Agriculture programs currently. Um, at the very least, we have to look at the money that's going out the door now, right? And it continues to support, it's now it's through crop insurance rather than commodity payments, but it continues to preferentially support those you know, historic commodities, if you will, the cotton, the corn, the soy. And so how can we take those payments? One proposal that I really like is that instead of subsidizing farmers for what they grow, um, essentially by insuring them against um, extreme weather um, or bad prices, is why don't we support farmers for the ecosystem services that they provide? Because if we're investing public money in agriculture, we should invest it in the part of agriculture that provides a public benefit, right? Because it's this hybrid public-private activity. People are running businesses and they're getting a private profit, but they're also stewarding public resources and the public commons as they're doing it. And they're providing food security to their community potentially. So if we're gonna have public payments to, to farmers, why shouldn't they be based on whether farmers are planting a soil building crop, composting, um, rotating their crops, doing things that we know are going to take care of the soil and water that supports the public 
more generally, right? And then there's also a suite of programs that have been <clears throat> chronically underfunded that are all about local food and are all about farms that are providing healthy, culturally appropriate food to their immediate community rather than just these commodities that are raw goods that get exported around the world and don't have a direct relationship to food security. So I think we can take that existing pot of money that's going out the door and shift where it's going. And those conversations are happening um, in the Biden administration. I think we're gonna see at least some of that. Um, you know, I think we also wanna see research that supports ecological farming. And there again, you know, research is often funded with public dollars. I was part of a study looking at what share of the research that is supported by USDA is actually looking at ecological farming systems. And it was tiny. Um, and then you look at the sort of historical disparity and so much of our publicly funded research is about how do you get a higher yield of a, a proprietary corn plant with the right amount of fertilizer and herbicide, you know, rather than things like, uh, you know, how could you use uh, a cover crop to provide fertility biologically, right? So I think we also, that's another way to shift the way public dollars are used that would really have a high return on investment, right? Because if you have research and you have methods that people can then replicate, then the farmer doesn't have to take the chance with their own dollars on experimenting with those things, which is what a lot of ecological farmers have had to do. And then the next step is to actually address the fact that there is a historical disparity, right? And so because all these resources were going to industrial farming and we're going to these white land owning farmers and not everybody else. And those kinds of operations are now heavily capitalized by that previous public investment. Should we actually think about trying to correct for that? And there is some legislation on the table around that. There's a bill that um, Cory Booker and Elizabeth Warren have co-sponsored. And I think I think it's called the Justice for Black Farmers Act. The term civil rights might be in there too. I forget what the final language was, um, but it's about the government buying out retiring farmers. So there's land that's gonna go out on the open market because so many farmers are retiring. There's a lot of farmers who are over the age of 60. There's gonna be a big land transition. If we do nothing, it's probably gonna to go to institutional investors who are gonna speculate on it or really, really big farms that already have a lot of capital. Um, so how about we have a fund, it's purchased by the government. Um, and then there's a process by which um, young farmers and particularly farmers who have been historically underrepresented because of this history of violence and colonization can get access to that land at a price they can afford, whether it's through a long-term lease or people are helped in making purchases. So that's a proposal that's actually really looking at addressing the historical disparity in people's access to practice ecological farming and for it to be available, um, you know, not just to white farmers and not just to wealthy farmers and not just to people who inherit land from their family. Yeah, that's really interesting. And there's so many layers that are going that are happening in this food system that we need to address. And I think a lot of um, what you mentioned, like changing how we spend money or changing how the government, where the government is focusing their research or where we address historical disparities. I think those are all really critical things to think about. And just to clarify, so, a lot of the existing problems in the food system, would that be due to historic, like history and policy from the past that have kind of caused these discriminatory practices? 
Yeah, I think that's a really astute question because I think um, I think actually what many people in society more broadly are recognizing more broadly in the wake of Black Lives Matter and a, a really um, you know apogee of social movements is that if there's been an injustice in the past, the only thing necessary for that injustice to continue is for it to be maintained. It doesn't have to be done again, right? And so. I think sometimes people have thought that um, really explicit racism or colonization is over because maybe you learned about in history class, um, you know, the horrific experience of Africans being kidnapped, um, forced to labor on plantations. You learned about Abraham Lincoln, you learned about abolition, you learned about, um, you know, the war that was fought <laughs> over slavery and you believe that it's over. Um, but people's bodies and people's labor were stolen. Resources were stolen from people. People were not allowed to benefit from their own work, right? So they weren't earning wages as they were working under forced labor conditions. And, you know, for a period of time after slavery, there was really explicit white violence. Um, then there was redlining. Uh, so people couldn't, um, you know, buy homes and build wealth. And so, all that was necessary to keep that racism and those power relations in place were tools of maintenance, you know, not, you didn't have to do it again, right? There didn't have to be a new slave ship in order to keep those same discriminatory practices in place. And the same thing is happening in agriculture that, um, you know, again, through all those series of laws, uh, through the Chinese Exclusion Act, through, um, alien land laws that didn't allow Japanese American people to own land um, because they were working in agriculture in California. They were earning money, they were pooling it, and they were moving up to being farmers and white farmers were threatened by that. So there was legislation passed to racially discriminate against people in land ownership. Um, and so how does that then, when you look today at disparities in land ownership, all along, there were white families that were building their wealth and ability to own land. And the land market was responding with the land getting more and more valuable. And Japanese Americans, just to take one example, went through those alien land laws. Um, and then they went through um, incarceration, right? Which we know is internment. And so they lost any land um, that even they were renting um, and lots of assets. And so the expectation that people are then gonna somehow catch up, right? Um, in order to eliminate those disparities that are based in history, um, you know, also between industrial approaches to farming and ecological farming, there's actually a need to make up for those disparities uh, because of the way that those systems have gotten capitalized um, in the interim. You can't just assume that um, if you stop incarcerating people or if you stop preventing them from owning land that all of a sudden the problem is fixed because people have this entrepreneurial access to somehow magically catch up. So the same thing has happened with, um, you know, as basic as like, um, you know, plant breeding, uh, because so much money has been invested in breeding for situations where plants are raised with a lot of chemicals and in monoculture, that's decades of science about how to do that. Um, and, you know, ecological farming approaches that, that um, are completely different approach to plant breeding that's about resilience and diversity and rather than this really narrow genetics that's gonna respond to chemicals, you don't have as much science there. You don't literally have as much like germplasm developed in those plant breeding programs. And so in order to catch those things up so that they're just as viable for farmers to use, 
um, there's a need to kind of, yeah, make up for those disparities in the past. So we absolutely are living with those legacies of choices that were made generations ago. Yeah, and it makes that makes it all the more important that we make the right decisions, both to rectify the mistakes that are made in the past, as well as now to whatever decisions we make now will have reverberations for hundreds of years. So Mm. now I kind of want to pivot to a little talking a little bit about your teaching and writing, which I think you mentioned earlier. Mm. Um, So maybe you could tell us a little bit about the courses that you have taught before and currently teach, maybe some of the class you're most passionate about. I'm also really curious about the books that you have written and was hoping you could speak to uh, what inspired you to write those books and what was the process of writing. (laughs) Yeah, well, I've I've always really loved narratives. I've always really loved stories. Um, And that was a big part of my journey as an undergraduate studying folklore and then being a singer songwriter. Um, For me, hearing another person share their own personal experience um, and their own sort of journey towards becoming who they wanna be in a sense, is a great way for me to learn about bigger concepts or social processes to kind of be guided by that person's story. Um, And so that was essentially the process of um, actually both of my first books um, was, uh, you know, when I went to talk to farmers in Montana who'd been part of this organic movement um, for my dissertation research, people told me stories like that. It was very personal for them why they chose to, you know, essentially stop farming with chemicals, take a big risk um, and uh, do their job in a really different way. It it was also choosing a different community. It was so controversial that many people, I remember one person saying we no longer got invited to the neighborhood Christmas party. Um, And so that level of the human story of why this conversion to trying to take care of the land more ecologically was so significant Um, I wanted to share it in that narrative way. So this book is called Lentil Underground, and it's the story of a group of people who come together to do something meaningful um, for their community, basically. You know, and it happens to be a conversion to ecological agriculture. But instead of just, you know, writing up the results of my research in in a quantitative way or kind of with aggregate numbers, I wanted to, you know, pass along these stories of these individual people, because I think it helps all of us, you know, reflect on our own journey towards um, a more ecological way of life or a way of being in relation with the beings around us. Um, that's more, um, you know, who we wish to be, I guess. And then the second book I actually co-wrote with a farmer in Montana, and it's essentially like a memoir. Um, so it's in his voice. Um, but I contributed a lot of, um, you know, kind of like larger context and reporting around it because he has this really compelling individual story. Um, but there are ways in which his story connects to really big um, social moments, you know, and so I could kind of step back and add in um, from some secondary sources, you know, basically to say, like, here's how this individual experience actually reflects like an experience many, many people were having at the same time. Um, and yeah, I mean, similarly with the project I'm working on now, um, in, in talking to a number of farmers who come from different communities of color and indigenous communities and understanding through their stories how the threads of social justice and ecological regeneration really interweave in a day-to-day way um, for people. 
Um, and that's a more challenging um, project. You know, it brings up a lot of questions about what's appropriate in terms of representation as a white author to be sharing stories um, from people I'm talking to who are identify as people of color and who are coming from communities of color. Um, and so, you know, that's like an ongoing um, dialogue for me, um, with me and collaborators and mentors about ways to do that responsibly. Because um, I, you know, I think it's, it's important that um, authors of color are, uh, you know, able to do this work and are uplifted. And I think there's a real danger of white people sort of inserting themselves as the like legitimizers or the experts or the storytellers. Um, so I don't want to replicate that dynamic. And at the same time, I really appreciate having the space to be curious um, and to listen and to share with others, including, you know, other people looking to be white allies about my own learning journey in a sense, you know, um, from listening more and how this has reshaped the way I think about my own research and my own field. Yeah, and it's great to hear that a lot of these stories and memoirs and books are the product of, you know, interaction with people who are directly working on land. And does that usually involve directly interviewing people who are on the farm? Or what is the process of research for one of your books? What, what might that look like? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I was kind of cross-trained um, in ethnography, um, both as an undergrad and a graduate student, which is what anthropologists do, um, essentially that you spend time in a community. And part of that is directly interviewing, but part of it is also just being around enough um, to, uh, for example, you know, overhear conversations, participate in social processes. The idea is that you're supposed to kind of um, learn the um, unarticulated norms, if you will, the kind of common sense of a group of people that tends not to be said explicitly, but that you would understand if you were part of that group for a long enough period of time. Um, and so that's, you know, sort of something I was trained in as a research method in school as an undergraduate and a graduate student. And I also took a lot of journalism classes. When I was a graduate student, I was really fortunate to get to be in Michael Pollan's writing seminar. And that's kind of a parallel practice to ethnography in a sense of reporting um, and engaging an inquiry that's really based on listening to people talk about their own experience. Um, and my first book, I had the, just the incredible luxury of actually spending a lot of time with people because I was a graduate student. So there was a lot of that sort of between the lines. Um, and then my second book kind of built off of that because a person I had gotten to know through that work um, you know, expressed an interest in working together on this sort of memoir style book. And so um, then we were able to kind of build on the earlier work. We didn't spend as much time together, but it was more directly, um, you know, kind of a back and forth dialogue about his life and experience. Um, and this most recent book I've been working on during the coronavirus pandemic. So that certainly hasn't gone how I planned. Um, yeah, I was hoping to be at people's farms and um, uh, you know, just attending events and sort of uh, uh, participating and showing up 
in whatever ways I could to get to know more about people's work in ways that didn't increase the burden on their time. It's something I think about a lot. Almost everybody who farms is extraordinarily busy. Um, and so how to sort of be present and learn in ways that don't introduce new demands. So that, that would have been my plan <laughs> in the summer of 2020, but um, obviously that was not safe. And that was a huge priority. The last thing I wanted to do was um, you know, create any kind of health risk for somebody that I'm looking to uplift their work. So I ended up doing Zoom interviews and a little bit of um, people taking videos, giving me kind of virtual farm tours and that sort of thing. Um, and so it was a different process. There was a lot more reading. Um, people post on social media now a lot more than they did when I started doing my research. And that's another place where I can learn about what somebody's up to and their work and what they're sharing without adding a burden to their time. So that was actually for the first time a part of my, my book research. And then a really important part of the process always has been after I write a draft, sharing it back with people, starting with just sharing sections just with the person quoted or featured in that section um, to make sure people are feeling accurately represented and talk through anything where the term doesn't feel quite right to somebody or the, the way it's framed doesn't feel quite right. Um, and then once um, we're good there to sort of broaden that out so that people see in context, but to avoid, you know, sharing any misinformation, even within the group of people um, that I'm writing about. So a lot of that, I'm sure many people have heard, you know, writing is revision, right? A lot of that um, actually happens in the stage of revising that first draft. Well, I'm really appreciating the level of thought that goes into how you approach your research. And when you try to work with people, it seems like a very well thought out conscious approach. So I think that's absolutely amazing. Um, and it was really interesting to learn more about ethnography and journalism that is involved in your research. Um, I want to ask about your teaching and maybe if you can speak to um, some of the classes that you are currently teaching. Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked because teaching is a really, really awesome part of my job. And um, when my grandmother lost the family farm, she actually ended up going into teaching. Um, all four of my grandparents and both of my parents are in education. So it's really, um, you know, a family, family tradition and something I've known I wanted to do in some way since I was young. Um, it's just amazing to get to be in dialogue with young people on a regular basis and just feeds me in so many ways, creatively and spiritually and on so many other dimensions. Um, and it's great to teach as part of a team, you know? I mean, I've always approached it as, I've always worked as part of a program and there are other instructors and the, the student experience is made up of a lot of different things, including class and also things outside of class. And so I've always, in joining a new team, thought about you know what role do I play here that complements what everybody else is doing. So my teaching now is actually really different than it was during the four years I was at Stanford um, because the, you know, sort of what I have to contribute to the collective is different, basically. So when I showed up at Stanford, um, there were classes about food and agriculture within the Earth Systems Program, which is the Environmental Studies Program. Um, and there were, there already existed like a broad overview class. My own partner was already teaching hands-on agroecology classes. Um, but where I found that there were gaps is um, there was a, an ethics requirement, a general education requirement. And what I heard from students was that 
they wish there were more environmentally focused classes that they could take for that requirement and also that involved different modes of learning that there had been a lot of focus on reading um you know so-called canonical texts uh, by people like Plato <laughs> and so, you know, uh, and there was a desire to engage with a wider range of material and different forms of learning and also environmental topics. So the first thing I was excited to do when I got to Stanford, having heard that, is create um, a course called The Ethics of Stewardship that was um, hands-on at the Stanford Educational Farm. And um, it was sort of a learning through doing as well as um, a really wide variety of texts from a really wide variety of voices and in different formats. So some of it would be, um, you know, sort of academic philosophy, but some of it would be narrative. You know, people have different vernaculars in which they express conceptual ideas. And so really embracing that. Um, students did these amazing profiles of land stewards. That was an assignment I really loved in that class. Um, is, you know, students were invited to go out and interview somebody that they saw as a mentor in some way that could help them learn. Uh, and there was such a wide variety of people. People interviewed family members who garden. People, you know, went out and found a farmer at the farmer's market or, um, man, one woman had this incredible story about her dad who grew up in Mexico on a small farm and learned a bunch of these ecological farming techniques, came to the United States and became a landscaper. Um, and the really tragic part of the story is the lack of access to their own land. But the really beautiful part was that sort of unbeknownst to his clients, in many cases, he was continuing to practice these land stewardship traditions within his job as a landscaper. And she was inspired by that. And she was drawing that line of like, here I am in environmental studies and I'm carrying on my dad's legacy and I'm carrying on my grandparents' legacy. So that was by far the most inspiring, you know, class I had the opportunity to do at Stanford. And I brought that class to UC Santa Barbara because I loved it so much. Um, and I taught it for the first time last year in the pandemic, which was super interesting. And it, we could no longer gather in a common space. So instead, um, you know, students were accessing whatever space they could as a sort of experiential practice. And it became in many ways about just kind of sustaining that sense of connection to life while in isolation and quarantine. That became a really big part of the class, honestly. Um, but then at Santa Barbara, I was really explicitly hired to like be the food and ag person in the environmental studies department because there was a, a really wonderful professor who preceded me um, who had retired and so, um, Nobody was otherwise teaching classes about food and agriculture and environmental studies. So I was invited to create like a big, broad intro class called Food, Agriculture, and the Environment, which is, uh, that's actually what I'm teaching now. So there's 144 students. It's an, it's an overview class. And then students who want to go deeper, I have these seminars like the Ethics of Stewardship that can be kind of the next step that are, that are smaller classes and more hands-on. You're quite busy as a teacher researcher, writer. Um, that ethics of stewardship class that you previously taught at Stanford, I think if it were still offered, I would have loved to take it. The learning by doing is totally my thing. And it's so amazing that you have been able to um, teach even during this pandemic in a way that allows students to sustain their connection to life and each other. So yeah, I would I'd say keep doing what you're doing, yeah. 
Thanks for that encouragement. I always appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah. And one thing is that I think an important part of every professional or scientist is role models or mentors that are present along the journey to uh, both uh, guide guide in professional and academic development. So I was wondering if there were any particular people that you think have influenced you along your journey so far, and maybe any words you might say to young students who are on this path of trying to create change in our food system. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think mentors are so important and it it takes a number of mentors. You know, the development of a person is a big project and it's a big team effort. And I've had so many mentors at different stages of my life and development who've each contributed really necessary and important things that kind of all complement each other, um, both within academic and professional settings and beyond them, you know, because my career wouldn't be possible if not for the ability to bring things from outside the institutions where I work into the work, because those things are necessary to sustain my own um, health, (laughs) quite frankly, Uh, passion, motivation. It's also what feeds my work. Um, And so there's just, there's so many, Um, but I'll mention a couple people. I um, I was fortunate that the senior thesis advisor I had as an undergrad was a woman and uh, an incredibly strong and courageous woman who came from a generation before me when it was way harder to be a female academic and faced everything, sexual harassment, discrimination, you name it, um, delegitimization of the work that she did (laughs) because it was considered more like feminine to um, do interview-based work or work with people from other cultures rather than to study, you know, old canonical sources in her field. Um, And actually when I was an undergraduate, we got a new college president who was a first class jerk and actually said super misogynist things, actually said he thought there were innate reasons why women didn't perform as well in math and science classes. That quote went viral. And she was one of the people on the front lines of fighting back against um, his misogyny, against his attempts to defund the humanities. (laughs) And that was an awesome learning experience, you know, to be in college and to see my advisor who was this powerful woman um, doing things that I never imagined I could necessarily do. But it really gave me that sense of like, you can be in this job, you can be in a leadership role, And if people push back on that, you can fight and you can win. That president was pushed out actually the year I graduated (laughs) because, uh, you know, really of activities that my advisor participated in. So that was big. Um, And then actually my current mentor, we have a, a mentoring program for new faculty in environmental studies at UCSB. And I'm really fortunate to be mentored by David Pello, who is an extraordinary environmental justice scholar activist a lot of what I've told you about the research methods that I use and the way that I go about my work um, is really inspired and informed by his mentorship. And it's amazing to actually have somebody that I can talk to as I'm making day-to-day decisions who um, 
you know, shares my values and is many years ahead of me <laughs> in terms of actually having operationalized those values in an academic career. So those are just two people specifically within academic professional spaces that have been extraordinarily helpful to me. And for young students, I feel like um, what's kind of most alive for me right now when I talk to students is just to encourage people to really draw on the wisdom within. You know, I think um, sometimes academic environments will, um, I'm gonna use this word again, delegitimize knowledge that students bring with them from their own experience and their own uh, intergenerational experience as well, things they've learned through family members. Um, and I think that's actually where the most important kernels of wisdom really lie in terms of the really um, fundamental um, principles that are gonna guide the rest of your work um, and lead you to work that you find um, really engaging and inspiring. And so I think, um, listening to your own wisdom and the wisdom of your own community and experience, um, especially it, at moments when it feels like it's delegitimized in an academic space or a professional space, um, and not feeling like you have to check a part of yourself at the door in order to belong in an academic setting or a professional setting. But um, I think the best work um, that I've seen students do both in school and beyond school comes from that really authentic place. And so it's a huge goal for me as a teacher to give a lot of permission and encouragement for people to bring that kind of wisdom forth. That's some really great advice. Um, something that I think a lot of our listeners can take away. And with that, Dr. Carlisle, it's been absolutely great having you here to talk with me today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Annie. Yeah, it's a pleasure visiting with you too. And I'm excited to listen in for some of your, your future episodes. Thanks for joining me on today's episode of The Sustainable Future. Be sure to tune in again next week to once again get a sneak peek into the pulse of the future of sustainability.